Great to be uh, with you again this morning, to be able to come and to share God's word with you. Uh, Chris, in fact, said, look, could you please just connect it to, to prepare us in a way for Easter itself. And so, so for this morning, we're going to be looking at this passage from John's Gospel, chapter 3. In, in a personal way of preparing for Easter, uh, Jude and I have been listening to a series of sermons with an Easter message. And yesterday morning we listened to a sermon by, by John Piper. And he, he begins this particular message um, by suggesting that we would, if we were there at the day, on the day of the, the, the crucifixion, if we were present, that we would be, we would be shocked. He, he suggests that if we were there watching everything unfold, that in fact, his own words, we would vomit. That um, what we saw would be so awful that we might end up screaming. We might throw ourselves down the ground and pummel the earth. It was so, so awful what was happening. Jesus having flesh pulled from his back by the whip with the, the bits of metal that are connected to the straps the condemned criminals being made to lie down on a cross and then those horrible crude nails being hammered through sinew of hands and feet and then the, the person who is to be hanged is being raised up and slotted into position on the cross and the agony, the screams as they would hang there for hour after hour struggling to breathe and then at the last moment to speed up the process of dying, the soldier would come past with this big rod of some sort, wood or iron, and would, would smash their legs so they wouldn't be able to breathe anymore and they would die quickly. Jesus already, of course, dead by that stage. Um, but the God still nevertheless takes a spear and thrusts it under his ribs into his heart and out gushes, gushes blood and liquid and fluid absolutely horrid, unbearable to even watch. But, but the point to the gospel story is that even though it was so horrific, and even though Jesus knew full well what lay ahead, yet he embraced it. He set his face to Jerusalem. He went there knowing what was, happened, what was going to happen in a few hours' time. He endured the cross for the sake of love. And so this morning I've entitled my message, Amazing Love. And our focus will be on particularly on verses 16 of chapter 3. It's a verse that is loved by many, and I want to suggest misunderstood by most. But before we go there, I want to say a few words about the context. So the context is there for us in the passage. It's in verse 14. Jesus has been conversing with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, religious guy, comes to Jesus, asks about the way to eternal life. And Jesus starts speaking to him about spiritual things. Even though he's a teacher, a religious teacher, he doesn't get it. It's like it all goes straight over his head. And then Jesus, to help him understand more, 
in order, in order to, to make it easier for him to grasp what he's talking about, does a comparison between him and this bronze serpent. And you can see it there in verse, in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the background to this particular uh, reference is actually found in Numbers chapter 21. And what's happening there in that, on this particular occasion is that the, the Israelites are making their way through the wilderness. They've been delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians and God is leading them through the desert. And what happens is they become impatient and also unhappy with the situation that they're having to face in the desert. And they begin to whinge and to complain against God. After all that he's done, they have the audacity to criticize God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt, they, they cry. Why have you brought us here to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. That's what they say. Those are the literal words from the passage. It's, it's a little bit like, and I don't know, if you can imagine, it's a little bit like when you come across, you're driving along and you come across this mangy looking dog on the side of the road, obviously been hit by a car. And as it whines in pain on the side of the road, you have mercy upon it. You take compassion upon this creature. And you reach out to help this dog in its pain and it snaps your hand and it sinks its teeth into your arm. And the Israelites are a little bit like that. Isn't that what they're doing to God? Again and again he has taken pity on them. He's had mercy upon them. And again and again they respond with bitterness and resentment. And so on this particular occasion, God judges the Israelites. He sends a plague of venomous snakes. And one by one they start getting bitten. And some of them start to die. And it's a case of, ow, oh, I've been bitten, and ow, oh, yeah, me too. And, and suddenly they're all getting bitten by these snakes. And as I said, some are already dying. Uh, they begin to cry out once more to God. Help, Lord, they cry. We were wrong to act in the way that we did. Please save us once again. Deliver us from these poisonous snakes. And that's where the bronze serpent comes in because God again has mercy on them and he basically gives them a way out. He instructs Moses to lift up this bronze serpent high in a place where all can see it. And the instruction is if you look to the serpent, if you look to this bronze statue, you will live. And so it's a case of, oh, I've been, I've been bitten. Look to the bronze statue and you won't die. And so, I'm sure you can appreciate the comparison that Jesus is making here between himself and this bronze statue. On the one hand, you have Israel, sinful Israel, rebellious Israel, 
unappreciative Israel, deserving of God's anger, but instead they receive God's mercy and forgiveness through looking to this raised bronze statue. And now here we are, people who have sinned before God, people with messed up and broken lives, fully deserving of God's just judgment, his righteous punishment. But what we find instead is mercy and forgiveness available to each one of us if we will but look not to a bronze object but to a person hanging on a cross to Jesus who is high and lifted up so that then is the context the verse that we're reading now needs to be understood against that background verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, it's important to just make the comment, uh, not everybody agrees with this, but it seems to me that, that what we have here in verse 16 in fact is not Jesus speaking, but is rather an editorial comment by John the author. And because I have Don Carson to back me up on that, I feel pretty confident that we're on the right track. Carson speaks of this as John's explanatory reflection. As I hinted earlier, this is possibly one of the most loved verses in the Bible, but one of the most misunderstood. So let's take a closer look. I'll ask anyone from a Judeo-Christian background about what is God like or tell us something about God and they will respond almost invariably that God is love. That's sort of uniform, that's across the board. God is love. If you ask them to now explain what they understand by love, then suddenly the picture's not quite so clear. It's important to recognize that the Bible does speak about God's love, but in a number of different ways. There's a range of meaning. So for example, on occasions, God's love is spoken of or describes a love that is a love in something that is worth the love something that has intrinsic value in itself for example the father loves the son he loves the son because the son is worth loving the son is the radiance of his glory the imprint of his nature he is worthy of the father's love love is sometimes represented as conditional if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. John 15 verse 10. We find the same idea also in the Old Testament from the Psalms. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, with those who keep his, his covenant, and to remember to obey his precepts. Psalm 103. So God's love is sometimes represented as conditional. To complicate matters a little, God's love is sometimes represented as a choosing, electing type of love. God chooses those whom he will love. And you can see that in the way that God loves Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, he says, we're told. No. 
because you are the fewest of all the peoples it was because the Lord loved you it's a choosing electing sort of love we find the same sort of thing many times in the New Testament Ephesians for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will so God chooses God elects that's a different type of love again and then lastly God's love is often represented as amazing love as unexpected love as a surprising love you expect one thing from God and you get the very opposite we find this idea expressed in many different places Ephesians chapter 2 because of our sinful nature because of our sinful lives we are by nature we're told children of wrath but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ totally undeserved totally unexpected so that love is very different from the love that we find within the Godhead he does not love us because of something in us that's beautiful not at all he loves us despite the fact that we are so ugly he does not love us because we are so perfect no no he loves us despite the fact that we are so flawed and broken so as you return to verse 16 you've got to ask the question when it says for when, when John says for God so loved the world you have to ask the question what is he what sort of love is he talking about there is he talking about a love for the world because the world is such a special beautiful place in terms of its people or is he saying something different does God love us as the world because we are worthy of his love does he love us because we are so attractive and lovely and appealing I remember hearing somebody say that if you were the only person in the world Jesus would still have died for you because you are so special to him that's just nonsense it's not the case at all the very opposite is the truth the world in John's writings is an evil dark unbelieving world he's not saying when for example he writes in 1 John he says love not the world nor the things of the world he's not saying we shouldn't love the creation he's not saying that this thing that God has made is a beautiful thing he's not saying there's anything wrong with going for a walk on the beach or enjoying a sunset that's not what he's talking about when he says love not the world it's not what John is talking about here when he says for God so loved the world rather what he's talking about here is the world that's been seduced by the values and the appetites of sinful people we should not love the ways of this world because it's a world which has turned against God and has shut him out this guy in, in Australia that, uh, that I met he told a story about this this individual this Australian in the outback who basically fenced off his property and declared that he now was an autonomous region from the rest of Australia 
no longer recognized Australian law. He declared in effect UDI. And that is how humanity has acted towards God. They basically declared UDI from him, shut him out. This is our world now, we don't want anything to do with you. We're now king and you have no part in our lives. And remember the context, just again keep that context in mind. The comparison is not with a sweet, lovable people, but with a whinging, grumbling, faithless Israel. That's the comparison, that's the background. These are the people that God saves in the wilderness. So when John tells us that God loves the world, recognize that he loves a sinful, evil, unbelieving world. And therefore it is a surprising love. It is an unexpected love. It is an undeserved loved love. He loves us not because we were beautiful, but the very opposite. Not because we were so lovely, but despite the fact that our lives were so horrid. It's an amazing love. Jay Packer, just another sort of perspective, he expresses it this way. God owes sinners no mercy, only condemnation. That's all he owes you, that's all he owes me, only condemnation. And therefore it should be a matter of wonder and endless praise that he should love us. And doubly so, when you appreciate what it cost him to pay the price. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So people misunderstand God loving the world. They also, I think, misunderstand God giving up his son. When you hear about God giving his son, often people immediately think of some sort of biological child, the father and his little boy, and the father is taking out his anger on the little son. And that's a picture that that sometimes occurs to people when they think of God giving up his only son. It can give rise to the criticism, as it has done so in certain places, to the, to the idea that God is this cosmic child abuser. We need to be careful not to overplay the idea of the dad pouring out his anger on his little boy. The little boy suffering as a victim. When John speaks of the son, he does not have that picture in mind. He's not thinking of God's offspring. He's thinking rather of the second person of the Trinity. The son who was with the father in the very beginning. The son who loved the father, the father, the father who loved the son. John Carson again provides a bit of help here by indicating that actually the term, the son, has a context within Semitic thought. So when, when the Bible, when, when, when the Jews thought of the son, they were thinking of rather than, than a sort of physiological connection, they were rather thinking in terms of relationship. The son who learns from the father, at the, at the, who's, who's the, 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 the carpenter or the stonemason, he learns the trade, and then at the end of the day he's called the son of the carpenter, or he is the son of the blacksmith. It's the connection that he has with the trade. 
And do you see something of that in the way that Jesus argues with the Pharisees when he basically accuses them of not being sons of God the Father, but in fact of being sons of their father the devil? What he's saying is there's no physiological connection there, but what he's saying is that they've got a connection in terms of their relationship with the devil and his work. So sonship is about a relationship to the Father, the relationship within the Godhead, that is, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father. So when you come to the cross, there's a bit of a mystery here, and it's a deep mystery, and one that you'll struggle to penetrate, but it's there all the same. Because on the one hand, what you have is the Father, God the Father, pouring out His wrath, His anger against the sin of humanity. He's pouring it out on the cross, and on the cross, at the same time, you have God the Son absorbing that anger, that wrath, taking it on Himself in our place. It's a mystery. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, and that's what happens to people who don't believe. They perish. Like the, 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 the Israelites in the desert, they die from the snake bites. John makes the point repeatedly in this chapter when he says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. A lot of people again get this a bit wrong. They sort of think that actually the reason that they are judged and condemned is because they have not believed in Jesus. It's not the case. It's not the case. People are condemned and judged because of their own sinful lives. Every one of us is worthy of God's condemnation. It's the fact that we believe in Jesus that, that that's the escape route, that's what saves us from a sure and certain fate. It's our sin that condemns us. And if we don't believe, the sin will take us, according to what we're reading here, to perish, to eternal separation from God, to hell. Uh, in Zimbabwe, we have got, like you have here in South Africa, we've got these granite outcrops. There's this one particular place in the Metopus. And on this one particular occasion, I had taken a few of my friends and we were about to climb this, this really bald, rocky, this bald uh, granite outcrop in the Metopus. And as I was about to go up with my friends, Suddenly, other friends of mine drove past, people who knew me quite well. They were in a car, they drove past, we were just at the very bottom, about to go up, and they shouted out and said, don't go with Ian, if you, if you know what's good for you, do not go up there with him. And we all laughed and chuckled, and it was really quite fun. And we started climbing, and about halfway up, the wife turned to the husband and said, next time the angel, God sends an angel to warn us, we we really should listen. 
anyway, we came to a stage and it was pretty slippery and it was, it was pretty smooth. And, and the only way that I could help them get up and further along, because they were quite nervous, was to actually put myself flat on the, on the rock face with a nice foothold for my feet and to say, look, why don't you just climb over me? And that's exactly what they did. They climbed over me and up to a place of safety. And, and in a way, in a way, believing is actually, in a way, climbing over Jesus, what he's done for us on the cross. It's holding on to him, taking hold of him, and not letting go. It's using him to take us to safety. Come, let's pray. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one son, his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. To believe is to take hold of Jesus. It's to say, well, I have really messed up. I have not only wronged other people, but I have wronged God. I have ignored his efforts to save me. I have laughed in his face. And I deserve nothing but his condemnation. But I will trust in the work of Jesus, his son. I will take hold of him. And I will not let him go. We want to thank you as we draw close to Easter, Lord God, for the, the wonder of the gospel, this good news, about the amazing love of God that does not give us what we deserve, but the very opposite. We do pray that for those of us who have been Christians for quite a while, that the regular hearing of this would not make us dull to the, to the depth of this message. That we would rejoice continually in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It is truly amazing. We pray at the same time that you would give us hearts that want to share this message, not only with our own family members, with our children, but also with our friends and with others that we meet. That we might be those who speak the gospel to others, who tell others about the good news of Easter. Help us in this, we pray. For we ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen.